All right, uh, let's pray as we get into our teaching from the scriptures. Father, you are a good God. And like my mentor just prayed for me, God, would you be strong in our weakness today? Where we are weak, you have proven to be strong in us. And so we just ask for this time. We pray that this time would be a moment that's filled with your presence, God. Would we just give you our entire attention? And would you just do the deep thing in us that we all need you to do, which is to change us and reform, transform our hearts as it was prayed at the beginning of the gathering. And um, God, we're, we're really needing you today. We're desperate for um, your word. And we thank you that your word, uh, when it goes out, it never returns void. So Jesus, we love you. We never get tired of saying that. We love you and we pray all these things in your name. And everybody said? Amen. Awesome. Okay, you guys, would you please stand with me for the reading of Scripture? Um, if you're just joining us, um, we are in the middle of this series on the letter to the Galatians, and we're picking it up right where we left off from last week. So here we go. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So you guys, welcome to literally the biggest conversation in Christian thought over the last 500 years at least. We're talking about the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, my impulse is to just kind of give you a bit of a history lesson about why this has become such a big topic, because I think it can explain a lot uh, about what, uh, how we got to where we are today in evangelicalism with like the reformed people over here and the Baptists and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and all of us non-denominational people and all of that. But you'll be happy to hear, y'all dodged a bullet. I'm not getting into the history. Um, after some uh, prayer and just some study, we decided that we didn't really want to talk about what Luther and Wesley and Arminius had to say about justification or how they influenced like the world of theology today. Now, that might not seem like much to you guys, but to me, that's like, it's like exercising some major self-restraint because the, the church history nerd in me just wants to come out and mess up this whole gathering. But I promise to not do that. Um, instead, all we're going to do is just examine uh, 
the verses themselves and, and, and try to interpret what all of this means for us today. And, and that even by itself is going to keep us really busy. And quite honestly, we will barely even scratch the surface of what's all here. So first things first, just a quick dis- disclaimer. Um, with this scripture, as in the entire Bible, we have to study these verses in the context of the letter and the, me- the Bible's message as a whole. You see, um, we have this tendency to sort of zoom in on a couple of words and overemphasize them. And then what happens when we do that is we sort of lose the plot of the story and the larger message of the book. And um, I, frankly, I think that you know pastors and seminarians and Bible researchers and stuff, we can sometimes be the worst at this. In fact, I'm in seminary, and anytime Galatians comes up in a seminary classroom, it's always this passage. And when we're talking about it, it's we're never like thinking about what Paul has just done. He's just called out Peter for sitting down at the wrong table during the family meal, and he's addressing sort of the bigotry and things like that that was present in the first century church. We're not really thinking about that. We're typically just like loading up an argument from the 16th century or something like that. Um, So if some of this is sounding foreign to you or whatever, please go back and listen to the podcast from the last couple of weeks because we're really uh, continuing on right where we left off. So uh, in a nutshell, what is the context then? What is the context of this? Well, uh, Paul is sticking to his guns that despite some really wrong-headed opposition, that the gospel of Jesus unifies everyone who believes in him at one common table. And again, in the, in the immediate context, uh, context, Peter had just been called out by Paul because he was sitting with the Gentiles for dinner, and then as soon as his Jewish friends from Israel or from, from Jerusalem came, he, he split off. And, and he sat down at a different table. And you might think, okay, that's just like maybe some awkwardness or a little click or something like that. But Paul is saying, no, 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 this is actually central to the gospel. We are either one family united under Jesus or we're nothing at all. And so the suggestion that like secondary identities like our ethnic heritage or political ideology or socioeconomic status or really anything else gives us the option to keep Jesus' people uh, at an arm's length because they're different from us or because we don't get them, that misses the heart of God altogether, the heart of the gospel. We are devoted to one another in family love. That is the message, the heartbeat of this letter. So um, while Bible nerds everywhere, like myself, are correct to get excited about these verses, the ones that we just read, in context of the question, like, how do we all get saved and how are we welcomed into the family of God? That's fine, but really, this sits inside the much larger story of what I'm just going to call healthy family business in the church. We're exploring the question, how do we forge loyal, fiercely loyal relationships with other Jesus people that can withstand the test of our differences? That's the question that's sort of at the center of this message and of this letter. And this passage is really, I think, the key to answering that question. And that answer is the reason why we're studying Galatians in the first place. Because the last couple of years, if we've learned anything, it's that the church was not prepared uh, for preserving unity in a polarizing moment like everything that our country and our world has been through over the last couple of years. You guys know that, unfortunately, lots of us have just gotten way more entrenched in our own opinions and kind of shrug our shoulders and blame disunity on someone else. Kick the can down to the road or punt to someone else. But for us at Riverbend, we just don't feel good about that answer. 
We just don't feel like we're willing to accept that because we see from the scriptures our clear vocation. We are called to be a healing and a unifying presence in our city as a main expression of how we follow in the example of Jesus. Amen? So because we have seen the work of Jesus and we've taken part in the work of Jesus, then we see it as a part of our role. Man, we need to be a uniting and healing presence in our world. So here is where that answer or that question gets answered for us. Look again at verse 15 and 16. Um, This is what it says. It says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, so far, right off the bat, that's just a big hint that Paul is essentially continuing his point from the previous verses. He's sort of playing it up too. It almost sounds like he's um, like sort of slamming the Gentiles, which he's absolutely not doing that. But then he uses that big word uh, justified. Now for some of you who've been around church or whatever, you're used to it and that doesn't strike you as strange or odd. You're familiar. But for others of you, maybe not so much. But here's what in a nutshell, justified is all about. It's those of us who are saved, or here's the point anyways. Those of us who are saved, we're not saved by our moral performance. We're actually saved by faith in Jesus. Amen. The truer words have never been spoken, and that's really the center of, uh, again, the passage we just read. Then he goes on. He says, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. There's some interesting construction there we're going to get into in a second. That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, so there is tons to explore here, um, but first let's really zoom in on that word justified for a moment. In Greek, it's the word dikaiotai, and it's a really tricky word to translate, but if you look at a very similar Bible word, dikaioi, that's the word righteous, righteous. So you don't really need to have like any background in, in, in like taking Greek in college or something like that to, to be able to see that these are actually coming both from the same exact word in the Greek. And that's exactly right. So righteous, the kaioi, is an adjective and it's used hundreds of times in the Bible to describe the character of God. God is righteous. It's used all over the place. But now, how do you make that word, how do you make that word, the kaioi, how do you turn that into a verb in English, right? Um, some have, have, have suggested like the word rightify, which is kind of a play on words and a little bit of a half joke, I think. Um, and the reason why that is, is because it is a kind of a tricky word to translate. So the way that tr- translators of the English Bibles have solved it is by using this word justified, which means to make right, or the state of being right, or the state of rightness. This is the New Testament sort of preferred way of talking about your salvation, You have been made right by Jesus. And it's all inspired by that word righteous. Okay, so you guys with me so far? Awesome. Okay, so why do we need to be made right in the first place? Okay, so again, like I'm saying, nobody has disagreed with us so far. Basically, anyone in Christendom would have agreed with what I just said. However, there are lots of nuances and differences of opinion all along the way. And so what we want to do is just sort of unfold a little bit what our view here at Riverbend is when it comes to justification. So for us, it starts way back at the beginning. So how, what do we, why do we need to be made right in the first place? The opening page of Scripture teaches that God handcrafted humans 
to enjoy him, in his image, to enjoy him and to enjoy his divine hospitality in the garden of delight. You were made for this beautiful, loving relationship with God in the presence of God, moment by moment, in the Garden of Eden. And it was so beautiful. There was like an all-you-can-eat vegan buffet, and clothes were optional. It was like a, it was like a whole, whole deal. Of course, I'm sort of kidding there or whatever, but the point is that life in the Garden of Delight was enjoying God, his presence, with abundance and zero pollution. It's only goodness. It's only what is right. And also we learn in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that we were made to partner with God in the flourishing of all creation. We're meant to take the project and advance it forward. In other words, God gave you and I rule and dominion. That's exactly what he did. He gave us dominion and rule over the earth in order to advance that beautiful vision here on the earth for everyone and everything. So again, the attitude of God in the garden of delight was enjoy me and then let's just take this good project forward where it's all goodness and no darkness. Um, And then at the end of that whole section, he says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was right. Right? Right. Yeah, it was right. But uh, long story short, we, again, we rebelled against God. This is the part of the story uh, we know pretty well. Um, We've rebelled against God's vision in favor of our own vision. See, the serpent tempted Eve Um, to trust herself instead of trusting in God. And I think that is still today the most sort of pervasive primary lie of the enemy is to try and convince you that you're more trustworthy than God is. And because we rebelled, um, man, we, we, we sort of took what God had given us. We rebelled about, against what God had said was good, and we sort of ran the project into the ground a little bit. God gave us dominion, and we abused that dominion. And if you just look around, it's like really self-evident what the Bible's talking about here. Unfortunately, our world is marked by all kinds of evil, and we won't get into that because that's a whole different conversation. But suffice to say, the world has been infected with evil. Now, of course, the world is still filled with tons of God's original design, tons of beauty, tons of love, um, tons of like amazing nature and all the good stuff, the righteous parts of humanity, of course. And it's all flowing from his, what the Bible would call righteous character. It's flowing from his righteous character in spite of the ways that we have sort of got the project off of track. So we're not all bad either. We're sort of a mixed bag of both good and evil. We still have a lot of the marks of, of, of God in the original design that he had for us. We, there's still a lot of good in humanity, of course. But something, the Bible describes something happening when we rebelled, where we agreed with the kingdom of darkness and aligned ourselves with the kingdom of darkness instead of the righteous kingdom of God. So then instead of like reigning in freedom, the scripture says that we became enslaved to sin and to evil. So it has this manifold impact or effect. The consequences of sin have begun to like work its way out and spill out into the world. We have, we're no longer reigning with God in his good vision. We're enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. So that's what happened at the rebellion. So what is God supposed to do with all of that? Like if you were God, how would you resolve that? Or what would you do with that? 
would you basically just decide to start over, like invent the metaverse or something like that? Or I don't know, um, basically decide that, man, these people have made a mess of the world that I made and I'm just going to sort of cut my losses and move on. But that's not at all what God does. That might be one strategy, a strategy that came from humanity or whatever, but that's not what God does. Because God is righteous, he's compelled. He's pulled towards taking what is evil and making it right again, right? Rebellion flipped the world upside down. It is not what it should be. And because God is righteous and his overflowing character is right, he is bent, heaven bent towards turning things right, right side up again. So it turns out that a righteous God is committed and bent towards righting the world, which is a way of looking at being justified. He's righting the world. So uh, what exactly is he making right? Again, um, again, there are all kinds of different thoughts and ideas and, and whatever. We're, doing. we're not taking time to go down the rabbit trail of what other people think or believe. This is just simply our reading of the scriptures. So what exactly does he make right or need to make right? Well, first of all, he needs to make right our relationship with him. That's the thing that was stolen at the rebellion. And that's the thing that he's determined to get back. And so in order to... Uh, make things right in order to bring things back to where he wanted them and how he originally designed in the first place, then he needs to forgive us. He needs to be able to forgive us for everything. But in order for him to do that, he has to forgive us honestly, righteously. He can't do that by like sweeping it under the rug or turning a blind eye because that would not be right. It wouldn't be right because when we sin and when we rebel, it causes havoc in the world and it harms the world and it harms people. And so because God is right, he's got to solve for that problem of there is this sin, there is this rebellion, there is this havoc that is spilled out into the world that's caused by my people who chose to go in a different way. And, and therefore I need to forgive, but I've got to do it righteously. That's a big, big theme in the scripture. He also needs to make right the consequences of our rebellion. Romans says that the result of sin is death. And of course, he means that in the literal sense, but also in like the decay and the toxicity that our sin releases into the world. So yesterday, for example, um, uh, we were doing some spring cleaning at the house, Grace and I and the kids. And so we came up with this like whole load that needed to go to the dump, this whole trailer load. And so we got in the car and we drove over to the not landfill. And I'm always overwhelmed by how much trash we humans create. It's insane, myself included. And my kids were with us, and they were shocked too at like, what is all of this? It's like, it's all of our trash. So yeah, bringing the kids to, you know, to go to the dump on a Saturday, like morale was pretty low. My patience was tested. It was kind of one of those afternoons. But um, I, I left with this sense that, man, if we don't change our habits around consumption, and if we don't, like, find a better way to deal with all of this just garbage properly, then the whole world is one day just going to be filled with our trash. And you might even be able to argue that that's already the case. There are entire islands of plastic floating in the Pacific Ocean. It's pretty insane. So overflowing trash is a metaphor to what I'm saying about how sin contaminates the world. Our sin contaminates the world in a similar way that our excess trash does. Um, and it's also kind of an example of it. 
as well. The way that we've sort of um, uh, taken all of the earth's resources and started to waste them. So if anybody wants to organize like a cleanup day, or if anybody wants to organize like a tree planting day, like count me in, I'd be all about that. But I think we long to be the other kind of person, right? We want to be the kind of person who spreads righteousness and not evil. We don't want to be marked by anger or dishonesty or brokenness. We, we don't want to be guilty of, of exploiting each other and stuff like that. We want to respond to the people in our world with grace, with compassion, with mercy, with generosity, self-giving love. That's the kind of people that we want to be. It's so much better. It sounds so much sweeter than contributing to the mess. We want to be the people who are actually contributing to the solution to all of the mess. So in other words, we need to be made right. We need to be made right. Again, the question is how? So the working theory of the Jewish tradition in Jesus' day by, was by doing Torah works, by eating kosher, by practicing Sabbath and following the Ten Commandments, stuff like that. Now, I understand that that sounds off and maybe even just kind of out of left field for you, and I understand, but devotees of the Hebrew scriptures uh, in Paul's day, they had good reason to feel this way. And they were likely really committed to uh, giving themselves to this and giving it their best shot. And by the way, it was what God had commanded that they do. So they weren't off base until now, until the era of the cross and the era of Jesus the Messiah in the flesh in Israel. So, so the Hebrew scriptures, they tell this sort of long drawn out story of how following the rules doesn't really cut it for humanity. Um, they get it right some of the time, but all too often they get it horribly, horribly wrong. And then it's not just the small stuff, it's also things like idolatry. It's also things like violence and murder. Just read about another mass shooting today in Sacramento. Um, just so tragic. The, 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 the people of God turned out to be corrupt just like the rest of us. And so the Bible tells this sort of long and drawn out painful story that concludes that, man, if the righteousing project were left up to us and our moral performance, then humanity would not have any hope. We, we, it's been proven that we can't lift ourselves up out of it and um, make things right on our own. And again, that's not picking on the Jewish tradition. That's just humanity on the whole. And I believe that this is an an important part of whatever journey of faith that you're on. Um, if you are reading the scriptures and you care about what Jesus thinks, which I know that you do, then this is a necessary part of our journey. We need to wrestle with our own weakness, that we ourselves, we, we've fallen short too. And of course that's about our sin, like I've made bad choices this week, things that I wish I could take back and all of that. But it's also about the consequences of our sin that we need help to make right. We need help to make the consequences of our sin right. And the sort of the spilling out into the world of the negative impacts of our bad choices. So when I was growing up, maybe you can relate to this if you were a, grew up in the 90s, like some of us cool people did. Um, uh, in the 90s, we, this, there, was the, there was the argument that uh, the common argument was comparison about sin and righteousness. I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Hitler has been used like a billion times over the last 75 years in support of this argument. I'm not as bad as Hitler, 
So surely I must be good enough or whatever. Again, that is to miss the point. It doesn't matter whether you're Hitler or Mother Teresa or Val in the fifth row. Like whoever you are, we are all being pulled towards sin. And we've all caused negative consequences to spill out into the world. And we all need help in order to be made right. Now the good news is, as a friend of mine puts it, uh, because God is righteous, he cannot stop pursuing the rebels, which I think is probably the most succinct way of describing the consistent actions of God over a sustained multi-thousand period of time where he just is refused to give up on his promise that he will make things right. So in spite of everything that I just told you about the darkness in the world and all this stuff, he is still good. He has not been contaminated. He has not been pulled towards sin. He's still righteous, and he is bent towards making us right. He will bring an end to the power of darkness, and he will bring an end to our slavery to sin. And not only that, he's not just like canceling out the negative impacts of sin. He's also redeeming and reclaiming the vocation and the purpose and the design that he had from you from the very beginning, from before the fall. That we actually get to partner with him in spreading his peace and flourishing in the world. Like, we get to do that. We get to be not only uh, are we being made right through the, the conception of the, the Christian faith, but we're much more than that. We're actually won back to the, the possibility of being a part of the healing of the world, which is so beautiful. We, we get to spread his love and peace. Again, how? That's, again, the question that we need to answer. Paul says it's not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. So this will be the marker of the righteous. The righteous will be marked out by faith. Now, faith, as you know, is a super important Bible word, too. It's the word uh, in Greek, pistis. And you find it at least three times here in this verse, but it is all throughout the letter to Galatians and many other places, of course, as well. And faith, um, hopefully you know, is, is, not, is more than just like a cognitive assent to a system of belief. Like, oh, I affirm these five doctrines on the church website or whatever. Doesn't that mean I'm, I believe or whatever? It's like, yeah, that's part of it. But faith is so much more than that. It is trusting in God. So for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago during spring break, my wife and I, we started taking our kids to the Bend Rock Gym uh, a couple of different times. And the reason why we did this is we found out that our daughter, Isabel, who's 10, she's fantastic at it. Like just on Friday, a couple days ago, we went with Danny and Lauren and she topped out two five eights without even like blinking an eye and zero hesitation, not even breaking a sweat. So since she's 10, and since I'm her dad and I've done a little bit of mountaineering in my day, it's very important for her to understand that I can still beat her. No problem. No problem. But it turns out it is a problem. She's uh, really good at it. Um, so the first time we went, to give you an example, um, we uh, got our harnesses on and we're like, so Isabel, it's, it's going to be high up there. You might get a little scared. She clips right into the auto belay and just zooms up a 5.7, tops out with no trouble at all. And so the whole time I'm thinking, wow, that's really awesome. And then as she starts to come down, I'm like, now I got to beat her. I have to beat her. No option. I have to. So, uh, so, um, so anyways, as uh, soon as she gets down, I immediately clip into the auto belay system. 
um, which if you've been there you, or you've been around climbing, you know what that is. So when she, she gets down, I clip into the autobelay, and then I quickly begin to work just climbing the exact same route. And the wall is probably like 35 feet tall or something like that. And I finished it, no problem. Clearly beat her, obviously. <laughs> obviously. This, I know this doesn't score me any points. My daughter's 10. Okay, whatever. But... But I was so focused on beating her that when I finished and I was like about to let go, I'm at the top of the wall and my first thought was, wait, what was that waiver I signed a minute ago? Like, what did that say again? And what is the weight limit on these auto belay things? Because my diet is like just starting. And like, did they... Did they actually do the, like, the routine maintenance on this thing? Can I really trust it to hold my weight? Is what I, was, I was afraid. I was afraid to let go of it. But then eventually, I had to trust what my mind already knew. That the belay system that I'm clipped into is built to safely lower my body to the ground. It's what it's made for. It's, that's what it's, it's, it's perfectly capable of, of doing it. And that is what faith is like. It's more than just agreeing with the idea that the belay system can theoretically hold your body weight. It's actually letting go of the wall and putting your life in its hands. Now, I understand that that is an extremely difficult thing for some of us. That's a big deal. Some of you have no problem putting your faith in Jesus. You've gone up and down the the wall hundreds of times. You have full confidence in the system or whatever. Your faith has never been stronger and all of this stuff. Um, But others of you, man, you've got like a death grip on the handles. And, and uh, it, it takes everything in you. You cannot connect your mind with your heart and your hands to let go. You're just frozen, wondering if the system or Jesus will be able to hold you. And so it's important for you to know that wherever you are today, it's like, we're so glad that you're here. And I think that Jesus would even say that there is hope for you, even if you find yourself having chronically low faith, which let's admit there is some of that in Western civilization. I won't be surprised to hear from some of you that your faith is at a low point. Others of you maybe just knew and, and you're not sure what you think. All of that is great. There's hope that we can find in Jesus. Here's why. Like I said, faith occurs several times in this passage and there's a lot of discussion right now, and there really has been for centuries, um, about how this word and these phrases should be translated. So I want to show it to you one more time, verse 16. And this time I want to show you in both Greek and in English. Don't get intimidated by this. I promise it's not going to be too difficult or whatever. You'll see that I've highlighted three terms. And this is sort of the recurring phrase that is in this verse. Faith in Christ, faith in Christ, faith in Christ. The, the Greek, it literally says, pistus iesu Christu. So if you're just to reduce that down to the words that are on the, on the, the parchment, if you will, faith, Jesus Christ. Okay, so why does that matter? Well, it matters because the discussion is about whether this should be translated like it is here in the NIV, faith in Jesus Christ, or if it should be translated the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The, so a minor nuance that actually has a major a ramification or a major implication as to the source of your faith. 
So you'll find if you've been, uh, if you are like, have your Bible open, um, you'll find like in the footnotes of your Bible, most likely it has like a little um, like alternate reading and it probably says the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason. People have been debating for years how we should be translating this. So um, it could be either. And that word pistis has been, uh, has this other meaning of like faithful, loyalty, allegiance. There's all kinds of really important work that's been done over the centuries on that. And so um, because that's the case, you can see different translations like the NET Bible, for example, puts it this way. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The exact same construction, but the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not the works of the law. So are you with me on the the difference here and why it's important that we understand? I think a growing number of scholars prefer this translation from the NIT. And there are more and more Bibles like the ISV and other translations that are beginning to translate it this way too. And just to kind of get it out there, I'm personally persuaded that this is how it should be understood. Justification in general should be understood and this particular interpretation or reading of this scripture should be understood. I think the reason for that is because, well, there's a couple, but the first one is that this really fits the logic of Paul's argument really, really well because he's been contrasting for a while while now the difference between the inability of humans to earn their keep, so to speak, or to become right based on their own moral performance with God's power and his devotion to righting the world through Jesus. So there is this, there's this contrast that's been unfolding over the last couple of chapters. And so essentially, um, if this reading is correct, then what the scripture is trying to say or trying to speak to us is that we aren't made right through our moral performance. We are made right because of the faithfulness of Jesus. His integrity, his faithfulness, his commitment to us to go to the cross, to never go back on his word. See, we could be pretty certain that I think this is what Paul is after and what he's emphasizing. So if you look at the next phrase in verse 16, I'll go a little bit deeper, not to go in too much into the weeds here, but um, again, the first thought is no one is justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus. And we have put our faith in Jesus. That's the exact next phrase. So there's a couple of things that could be happening. Either Paul's being redundant, saying the same thing twice, which he sometimes does, or he's emphasizing, again, the faithfulness of Jesus, and then your and my response to his faithfulness. He is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. That's 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite verses. So think about that. What we're saying, again, the, the purpose of today is to think as clearly as possible about these questions. So, um, so if you think about that for a second, based on how, if, if our righteousness, if our position was based on how well or how hard I'm able to trust in Jesus, then it kind of feels like my righteousness is still sort of up to me in a way. But, if the correct translation is on the faithfulness of Jesus, then we are made right by his integrity, 
his trustworthiness and his faithful work on the cross. And by the way, this is what we celebrate on Good Friday and the coming Easter holiday just in a couple of weeks. We celebrate that the cross is like this penultimate act of faithfulness that reverses the effects of our rebellion and anchors things and rewrites the world and makes everything right, and that includes you and me. Again, you can find this all throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in other words, what the Scriptures are trying to to unveil and, and reveal to us is that what Jesus has done is on the cross he has absorbed all of humanity's sin and all of the evil and he has released not more darkness, but he's actually released love and grace and mercy and forgiveness in its stead. So finally we are made right because he's able to absorb evil evil and release righteousness. Again, to be super clear, what, what exactly is Jesus accomplishing here on the cross or what is being righted on the cross according to this scripture? Well, a couple of things. Number one, our relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. Our relationship with God through the forgiveness of sin. So God In this solution, he's not turning a blind eye or sweeping under the rug the sin of humanity. He's actually dealing with it through the representative death of Jesus, right? Which that's a whole other conversation under the subtitle of justification, which we're not going to get to. But essentially, God is paying for the sin of evil and the sin and evil of humanity through the cross. And because of that, he's able to righteously offer forgiveness. Second, um, he's setting us free from the slavery to the kingdom of darkness. So that hold that I was talking about, that the enemy had over us through our rebellion, has been overturned and securely won through the victory of Jesus. Anybody excited about that? Yes, we should be. Come on. Is so, so good. The victory of Jesus has set us free from our bondage to evil. We don't have to be the person and the kinds of people who contribute to the mess. We can actually be a part of the healing of the world instead. And number three, he's accepted us in the family of God. So he's forgiven us of sin. He's set us free from the hold of darkness. And then he has also accepted us in the family of God. So we belong now. We're full-fledged, adopted children, heirs in the kingdom. That's who we are. That's our primary identity. We're God's kids now. And that's possible through the cross. So that's what we are meant to see there. But um, what about our part? Don't we have some kind of role to play? So we get it that, you know, God has this outsized role because he's the only one who is truly faithful. But how do we play a role in this process of being made right. Well, um, this is what I think the scripture wants us to know. Our role is to respond with answering faith, what scholars call answering faith. So we look at his righteousness, we look at his relentless pursuit of me, the rebel, through the cross, and we answer his faithfulness by putting our faith in him. So in other words, we let go of that wall and we rest in the power of God. So again, how we respond, and this is for your reflection and to you, for you to contemplate together as we're about to go to the tables, is we answer the faithfulness of Jesus by putting your faith in him. He's been faithful. 
and through the cross, you can be made right. All you have to do is respond and answer to his faithfulness with a devotion and a trust in him. So uh, I know what you've been told, and I know what most of us or many of us have internalized, and that is that faith in America, in the modern West, sort of secular age, is on the decline. You've heard that, and I know that many of us have, have kind of experienced that, maybe even firsthand. But I genuinely believe that actually what's going on is that there is a group of people, you, who are... Um, coming alive to the faith of Jesus, that you are turning your eyes to see his faithfulness and you're actually becoming awake to what he wants to do in the world. So if, if what you're saying, if, if, if you want to say that faith is on the decline, if you're saying that like, um, like playing religion is on the decline, I'm, I, I'm, I'm good with that because I think you're right. I think just like statistically speaking, Tens of thousands, if not more, people in Oregon are, 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 are leaving churches actively. Um, and that's a, kind of a tragic thing. There's lots to it. But I think what's really happening, though, is there is an appetite. There is a hunger. There is a longing for the truth about Jesus. There is a longing to follow after Jesus in a real, authentic way. And that's the invitation that's in front of you. The invitation that's in front of you is, is not to, um, to like check that you affirm the belief system. The offer that's in front of you is to say yes to Jesus and to answer his faithfulness by giving your life back to him. Remember, the righteous are marked out by faith. They're marked out by faith. Um, the next sort of reflection for us is that we are guided into this new way of living and that's what we do. We embrace the new way of living. Verse 20 says, it is, not, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Meaning that my life is now united with Christ, his sufferings and his victory. And therefore, for me, everything has changed. And for you as well. If you are in Christ, you are united to him. So God's original vision for you has been restored means that we, can, we are uh, forgiven, accepted, and then we are released back into the world with the freedom to join in on the project that he had in mind from the beginning where we get to cause the flourishing of all creation, hopefully in partnership with the Lord. So what does that actually look like? I realize that that's a, like, a, like maybe it sounds like a technical phrase to you or whatever. Here's what I think that means in practical terms. We let the cross be our new lens. We actually look at life through the lens of the cross and we want to be cross people. Okay, so what that means is that it looks like our relationships are being restored through forgiveness. We are reconciliation people. We are forgiveness people. It's who we are. It's our modus operandi. When people wrong us, we want to forgive. That's how we are now wired. Again, our knee-jerk sort of impulse is to hold a grudge and to complain about others and all of the negative things that we used to do, gossip, slander, all the stuff. But that's not who we are anymore. Because of Jesus... Our view has been made right by him and by the cross. And so instead of holding a grudge, we embrace that person and we extend forgiveness instead. Again, the, the pattern that we see with Jesus is on the cross, he absorbs evil and he releases flourishing. He releases righteousness. He releases blessing. And that's what we want to do as well. As best as we can, and we're not going to get it perfectly, but we want to absorb that stuff that's going on in the world around us and release 
peace and joy and hope in, in its place. Um, so I guess a question for your reflection on that topic is, is there anyone here or anywhere really that you need to make reconciliation with, that you need to reconcile with? Is there someone who just the thought of their name or that thing that happened a couple of years ago where you're like, you just kind of cringe inside and you get awkward over just thinking about that person or if you see them at Target, you're like, oh no, I'm gonna choose a different aisle. Again, zero judgment from me. I've actually... Um, had a few friendships that have gone sideways and that I've lost in the last couple of years too. So I'm saying this to you just as much as I'm saying it to myself. But how can we reconcile with others? Again, we've quoted this before, but I'll say it again. Ephesians says that as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. I love that. So the second thing is that it looks like freedom and victory over sin. So in other words, because of Jesus, you're not enslaved anymore. Like you're still going to be tempted, absolutely, and you'll still be pulled towards sin, but your orientation has completely changed. You have been made right, so now you're wanting to make things right. So a life of habitual sin doesn't make sense for you anymore. Like continuing in the way and continuing in the pattern of sin that you were living in before you knew Jesus, it, it's, it's not, it, it's, it, it doesn't make sense in light of your current state. Instead, what we want to do is pattern our lives in the practices of Jesus instead, which is what you've heard me say dozens of times. We immerse ourselves in scripture. We take part and join in, participate in corporate worship like this. We, we live a lifestyle of prayer and we practice community and hospitality and all of the things that we see Jesus doing. We're not habitually patterned after sin anymore. We're habitually patterned after the habits of Jesus. And as we do that, we become a more Jesus-like person as a result. You're filled with the Spirit to walk in his peace. And it also looks like inviting and accepting others into the family. So because of what Jesus has done for you, you have been made right. That is your, that is your present reality. Like you are forgiven. You are accepted. This is your new reality. You're no longer enslaved to sin, which means that you are now a guide you are now a guide for anyone who might be outside of the family who wants to have relationship with Jesus. In other words, you can um, have a lifestyle that draws people into the beauty of Christ. And I guess that's the question for your reflection. Are, are you living a life? Are you living a life that reflects the beauty of Jesus in a way that would actually draw others to want to follow him as well? That's a big question. See, we could spend our time uh, like lining up gospel sermons and just crushing them out of the park. But unless we have a compelling voice, because our lives have actually been dramatically changed by Jesus himself, then most often those words fall on deaf ears in our context where we live. But if you demonstrate the love of Jesus, if you demonstrate the healing that he brings to your life and then begin to spread that out, have it spill over out into the world, not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense, then I believe that beauty of Christ begins to draw people in. In the last gathering, I referred to that off the cuff as sort of like the, the aesthetic of the kingdom. Like, does your life kind of give off that look, that feel, that smell, that taste 
Do you carry that with you, the aesthetic of the kingdom? Every time my mentor, Phil, walks into the room, he has this massive smile on his face, and he goes, how are you? He puts his hands on my shoulders. He assures me everything's going to be great. He quotes some Proverbs to me. It's like my whole life is impacted by those 15 seconds. And that's exactly what, what I'm saying. You don't have to be Phil, because no one, no one here is Phil. Only Phil is Phil. But, the, but, but you, in your own way, can carry that presence into the world. And quite frankly, that's what we need in order to regain a compelling voice in society, is that you model the way of Jesus in a beautiful way. Are you guys with me on that? Okay. And so then the questions are, are you inviting people in? Who are you inviting in? Those of you who are a part of Alpha, you're crushing that. Thank you. Keep it up. But others of you, who are you inviting? And then what about those people that are difficult for you to accept? The ones that you find yourself on opposing sides of the coin on almost everything. Notice how the love of Jesus is just for them as much as it is for you. He loves your enemy. He loves the people you differ with in almost every way in the exact same way that he loves you. And so we need to grow in our acceptance of that and even get on that program with him. Last reflection. I think this is why... uh, Paul has been calling out Peter's carelessness about church unity. He's been sort of referencing it and kind of hammering it home that we actually need to preserve unity at whatever cost because the common table of communion is the prime example and living proof of Jesus' faithfulness. It's the living proof of Jesus' faithfulness. Let Let me explain what I mean. Because of Jesus... You have been accepted in the kingdom. You have been adopted in the family by answering him in faith. Then according to the scriptures, you are at the exact same time as trusting in Jesus. You are at the exact same time accepting anyone else who trusts in Jesus as your sister and brother. If Jesus is my king, then you are my sister. Period. End of story. That's how it works. We are all being invited to that same family. And so the common table is this beautiful metaphor that symbolizes a lot of things, but it also tells us something about our oneness. We all go there. We all go to the table of communion, figuratively and literally, in order to receive um, grace, in order to receive forgiveness, in order to be made right. And That means that it should never be broken into two because that represents a fundamental misunderstanding. Peter was peer pressured into doing that. He was peer pressured to splitting the group into multiple groups that did not belong. And and we've been peer pressured to do the same as well. But as we understand the gospel and unfold its layers, reconnecting it with the message of this letter, we recognize that we are not to let any other identity that we have trump the union that we share in Christ. We would, uh, that would mean that we were trusting more deeply in someone or something else besides him. And you don't. I know you don't. You, you trust in Jesus. Therefore, we need to come under alignment and under the authority of Jesus here. There is one new humanity. There is one king. There is one table of communion. And when we come to him, what we're saying is God's renewal is found here and nowhere else. And if I am welcome here, then everyone is welcome here. 
And so we, we, we need, in order to forge these lifelong, fiercely loyal relationships, we need to recognize that at times we have put other things in front of commitment to Jesus, in front of devotion to Jesus, and what that means for your brotherhood and sisterhood with me. And we need to ask forgiveness for that, but then we need to come back to the table of communion and remember that we have all been united by him. So I want to just guide us through a few little meditations as we close. You guys have done amazing. You've been amazing sports. Thank you so much for hanging with me. Would you please stand and let's pray together. So um, just allow your focus to come back to center. We are all here gathered in Jesus' name. So what that means is that in this very moment, you direct your attention, or in the language of Colossians, you fix your eyes on Jesus. So just turn your eyes to him now. And I just invite the Holy Spirit to come. We invite you here, Holy Spirit, to bring application, conviction, encouragement, challenge, wherever we need it. And the first question is, is there any area that God needs to heal? Maybe there's been a, a, a time, this has been a time of life where a lot of that sin, maybe from other people, has contaminated you and has harmed you and has hurt you. And you're here a wounded person because of the sin of others. That's okay. And God is actually right here with you. And he, and he wants to bring genuine healing into your life. And so Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and to do that. The second thing is, are you answering him in trusting faith? Are you answering Jesus' faithfulness? He's been faithful to you. Are you throwing your arms open wide and embracing him with your whole heart, saying, yeah, I need that. I confess that I need that. And I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to receive. We don't do this very often here. Um, but we just want to give you this invitation now. Now's the moment where you can say yes to him, where you can answer right now. This doesn't have to be something that is off in your distant future or whatever. This can be something that happens today. And so I just want to invite you, if you're ready to trust in Jesus, maybe you haven't done that before, maybe something was explained to you in a way today that made sense, and now you're like, oh, I thought I did, now I really do. I just want to encourage you to go and receive prayer in the back of the room. We would love the chance to just talk that over with you, pray with you, and welcome you in the family. It's cause for celebration. For some of you, it's just time to do that. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring that um, conviction to the center of our hearts if that's what you have for us. And then the, the, the last thing, the last reflection is to just allow gratitude to begin to rise up in your heart. Let the Lord, um, the goodness of the Lord, the righteousness of God, let that bring you to a place of true gratitude and thanksgiving. Again, the reason why songs are a part of corporate worship for the church is because God told us to do it, one. And for two, some things like gratitude need to be sung aloud. We have so much to be grateful for. 
that our words would probably come up short. So let's sing them out together. And then we're gonna come to the table, the one singular table of communion with Jesus at the center, giving his life for us. So during this next song, we just wanna invite you to, to come forward, grab the bread and the cup, and then as one church, we'll take it here in a couple of minutes. Jesus, you are king and we love you so much. Thank you for all of your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's sing.